0: You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Good morning, Church. Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble, and you surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. As we've been walking through the Psalms here, there's been many Psalms that talk about um, what's going on in the moment for David. And so he might be uh, in a discouraging time, a a joyful time, um, surrounded by enemies. And some of the Psalms just kind of and there, in, in the moment. And the resolution is either not given to us or, or comes later in, dif- in different Psalms or in different places. Well, here, David is describing an event that happened to the past, and he wants to use it to, to encourage us and instruct us um, in, in the way of the Lord towards us and how he blesses us. And so here, David is walking through a past event and explaining it to us um, so that we may learn from it. And so when we look at the outline of Psalm 32, it actually is can be similar to a paper he might be writing in school right now or a paper you have written in the past. And so at the beginning, David just says what his, his main point is here, who is blessed. And then from there, the meat of the Psalm, he walks through reasons and an explanation of why that is true. And at the end, he, he restates what he says more confidently saying, you know, I've explained it here. Here is why what I said earlier is true in his conclusion. He says, here, here's who is blessed and we should rejoice in the Lord. And so it's, uh, it's an argument here about walking through David's past experience. And so as we walk through this psalm this morning, I want to just ask three main questions of the text and then try and answer them. So the three questions we're going to look at is, first, what is meant by... A spirit with no deceit in verse 2. Second question, what's at stake here? And third question is, Is who are the godly in this psalm? Verse 1 and 2 gives a threefold description here of those who are blessed. And it ends with actually an extra f- phrase at the end, which is a fourth description of those who are blessed. And is the foundation of the rest of the psalm. So let's read Psalm 32 verses 1 and 2 again. So David says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. So question one, what is meant by a spirit with no deceit? And so first I want to look in the context here, lest we jump too wide and miss what David's talking about here. So I want to look for answers within the psalm and, and clues we get here. And so some things David says here as he fills out who the one is who has no deceit. He gives descriptions here, and he's talking about all the same person here, and talking about himself, actually, as an example. And so in verse five, we get a bunch of them. He says, they are a person that acknowledged their sin to God. They do not cover their iniquities. They confess their transgressions to the Lord. Um, and these people with no deceit, they are forgiven by God. And at the end of the Psalm, he calls them the upright in heart. And so when David's talking about no deceit, that's the people he is talking about here. So what does it mean? It's a person does not hide their sin from God, but confesses it. The sin is there, sin is in all of us. The question is, are we going to hide it before God, or are we gonna confess it to God? That's what David means here by no deceit. So let's look a little deeper into what this means. And so one, this confession, It's not just honesty. And so if we go to John 1, verses 43 through 47, this is a place where no deceit comes up and it might have popped into your mind as this psalm started. And it says here in in John 1, The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said to him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. So Nathanael here is being honest. Um, other words we might use is he's, he's being real. Um, but he's also being extremely judgmental. Um, Jesus here affirms the honesty in Nathanael's words. Nathanael's saying what he honestly thinks. He's like, can anything good come out of that town? And so Nathanael here, he's being real, uh, genuine would be words we would use, authentic maybe would be another word, and often we can speak this of our, ourselves, but it doesn't mean we're confessing. And so we may say things like, I'm just super competitive. I just find people like that a little frustrating. I know I can get a little carried away. I know I can be a little controlling. And in these statements, the word just might be the tip off for us. If we say, I'm just this, often we're justifying ourselves. And we're being being honest. We're saying this is who we are, but that doesn't mean we're confessing it. And in fact, it might be self-preservation. It might even be boasting in these things, as if being super competitive um, or super critical is a good thing. And so we can say we're just being real, um, but we can be preserving ourselves. I'm I'm just that way, that's that's just the way I am, that's just who I am, Um, leave it it alone. And so we can tend to protect ourselves in these ways, Um, but there's honesty there, like there was in Nathaniel, but it also doesn't say, that's who we ought to be. And so you say, I'm, I'm just really competitive, and you might just mean, actually I'm a jerk when I play sports, um, and I ought not to be. That's what confession looks like. The acknowledgement, of not just this is who I am, but I ought not to be this way, and therefore I need to confess it. And so Jesus here affirms the honesty um, in Nathaniel. There's no deceit, there's no hiding what he thinks, but it doesn't mean what he thinks was correct. Um, And in Psalm 32, in speaking of deceit, is more than being honest, as we've seen. He's speaking of a vertical direction here of either hiding your sin or confessing your sin to God. God's in the picture here. So in David's words, he was deceitful in verse 3 when he kept silent, it says. But his deceit was removed in verse 5 when he said, I did not cover my iniquities. And so there's honesty But it's more than just being honest, is the person here that confesses and has no deceit. It's also not just sorrow. Verse 10 says, Many are the sorrows of the wicked. And so if you feel bad over something, that's actually an effect of doing something evil, of something wicked. It says, Many are the sorrows of the wicked. And so. It's more typical to have sorrow because of your sin than it to be a a sign in and of itself that you've confessed your sin um, and that you have repented and spoke to God on behalf of what you have done. And so regret to sin, that it costs you something, that it has consequences, is is not repentance. The sorrow of being caught in something is not repentance. If your confession came as a knee-jerk reaction to being confronted about something, it likely was not repentance. It may lead to repentance, but it's not repentance in itself. And so just feeling bad about something does not mean you've confessed it to God. It doesn't mean God's in the picture at all. Um, You might just feel really guilty, and you sleep on it, and, and it's gone. And so sorrow can lead to repentance, but sorrow is not in and of itself an evidence that you truly feel sorrowful for what you've done, and that you've confessed it and repented to God. You can be wrecked by your sin and still try to hide it from God. Being wrecked and devastated by consequences or how you feel about what you did doesn't mean you've confessed it to God. You still might be hiding it. And so sorrow alone, even feeling guilty, maybe feeling shame, does not mean that you've confessed, does not mean you're the one here in whom there's no deceit. And so It's more than honesty, and it's more than just sorrow. And in Psalms here, as I said, those with no deceit are those who confess their sins to God. Not they feel bad just because there are bad consequences, but because their error was rebellion against God. God is in the picture when it comes to confession here in Psalm 32. And so that's question one. Who are those in whom there's no deceit? And David said it's those that don't hide their sin, but confess it to Yahweh. Question two, What what's at stake here in this confession and in this repentance? And there's temporal things here at stake and there's eternal things here at stake. So first, temporal things that David talks about. Again, David is posturing himself here as, as the example. He said, this is what it looked like for me when I hid my sin. And so there's three interconnected examples here I want to give. There, there's more than that, but they're, they're linked together in how they work. And um, these all fall under the banner of that God, God's word and God's world work in harmony. They work in unison. And so there's ways that natural consequences and what God has told us not to do align. Um, and this is, this is a grace to us. So three, three examples of this in the psalm. First, there's, there's physical consequences here. So David in verse three says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groanings all day long. And he says his strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And so David's saying, I I was feeling it physically here, Um, whether he was discouraged or uh, depressed or just felt like he was um, missing joy um, or just even physical pain. David's saying there was physical effects here of me covering and hiding my sin and not confessing it to God. And so that's one, there there are physical effects David talked about here. Two, just natural or emotional effects in David covering his sin. Verse 10, as I mentioned before, he said, many are the sorrows of the wicked. Much of our grief is self-inflicted. The Bible talks about how we reap what we sow. This is what God has naturally put into his world and into his word. And so when he says to be diligent and not be lazy, Um, It's for our good. We will reap natural good as we obey God's word. Um, Or he says, do business with integrity and honesty and be kind and honest to your neighbors. And these things reap good things. When you're honest to your neighbors, it can benefit you and often benefits you because what God calls us to do and what's good for us in the world often align. And in the moments that they don't, Maybe in business, it feels like to to cut the corner here is lucrative and everybody else does it. Um, And so it feels like there would be a good reward. Um, But we don't do it. It says better to keep your integrity than have unjust gain. Um, And we trust the Lord in that. Uh, We trust the Lord that what we reap We may sow later, or what we sow, we will reap later. Um, And so we trust the Lord in that, and his world and his natural consequences and blessings align with what he calls us to do. And David's feeling that a little bit. He's feeling the sorrow, the groaning, and he says, it's because of my sin. I'm not doing what God has called me to, and so I'm feeling that. I'm feeling that natural emotional consequence. A third example here is, you'd say, spiritual. What I really mean by that here is his, his conscience, his heart. Um, this could be when David talks about wasting away. This might be when David says, "'The Lord's hand was heavy upon me day and night.'" And so his conscience in this moment may be feeling these effects too. Maybe his conscience is really pricked, and, he, and he's feeling it, and he feels guilty. And that's the alarms going off that he says, something's off. I'm, I'm not confessing it to the Lord, but, but I need to. My conscience is, is alarming me right now. Or it might be his conscience on the other side. His conscience could feel dulled, um, things that he used to care about. He doesn't care about as much anymore. Um, maybe he feels a little depressed or discouraged, and there's, and there's things that he knows he ought not to do, but there, there's, there's no effect. His conscience isn't saying, no, don't do that. That's against the Lord. It's, it's become convenient, and his conscience has been dulled. And as he sees that, that may be the Lord heavy upon him that he's saying, my, my heart is drifting. Lord, I need to come back. And so here's an example of temporal consequences that are, that are linked together, the physical, the emotional, the spiritual are linked together in our temporal consequences for our sin that David talks about here. And so one one question I ask here is, does this mean that every time I'm in that circumstance, it's because of my sin? The answer would be no. And that's important to see. If you guys know the example of Job, his friends come up to him and say, Job, what else could it be? There must be sin here. What are you hiding? What are you doing? What have you not confessed? Because the Lord's hand looks heavy upon you. Um, And you're walking through all this grief and and all this pain and all these seemingly consequences. And so it must be because of your sin. But Job's friends there were in error. And so a caution for us to think it must be because of our sin or specifically in others saying, well, if it's nothing else, it must be because of their sin. And so... We might be in error there, assuming that in all circumstances, it's directly linked to an unconfessed sin. But let's not err on the other side, and let's not just say it may never be because of our sin. I think this is the side we more likely be to err on these days. In our culture, and often in our church, sin's really been domesticated. Um, and we see extreme things, and so the lesser sins, we, we let go. We don't feel as bad about. Um, we're okay with those lingering around. And so it's an individual question to ask, but I think a majority of our temptation would say, it can't be attached to our sin. It's just a hard thing going, I'm going through. But David here in Psalm 32 specifically says, it was because of my sin. And so that's a worthy question for us to ask and to, for us to consider in times that are really painful, times that are really hard. And so you may think, How do I spot that? How do I know? Um, Or if I'm in that moment and God's hand feels heavy upon me, what do I do? Um, And I'd say, you you might not know. Um, But there's ways to pursue it. David here gives us all kinds of words to fill our mouths and our minds and our hearts with in in Psalms, in this moment where are saying, I'm not sure. It could be. Maybe it's not. I just feel stuck, Lord. I feel your hand heavy. I feel circumstances heavy on me. And so we can pray things, similar to David does in, in Psalm 139. He says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. You could pray that. Say, Lord, search me, reveal it to me, show me. If this is because of my sin, reveal it to me, so, and lead me out of it. Help me to confess, and repent it, and, and move on from it. So you could pray one, one, Psalm 139. Or you could pray Psalm 16, one through two. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. And maybe it's good to pray both. Say, Lord, search me, and as you're searching me, preserve me. I'm struggling, Lord. As the heat of day, I'm I'm dried out. My bones are weary. I'm grieving and groaning all day long. Search me and preserve me, Lord, as I dig into this. And so you may not never... No, Um, and there's no litmus test there, but pursue the Lord and trust that he will reveal to you um, what he is is doing, and it may be because of sin that you've hidden, that has distanced God from you, and he's graciously put his heavy hand on you to bring you back. These consequences that are temporal are are graces in our life to alert our dashboard to say something's off, the Lord's hand is heavy on me, my conscience feels dull, My joy and hope is diminished. I feel distant from friends. Maybe I feel distant from God. And it's a good question to ask, is that because of my sin? Is my sin separating me from God? I should confess. I should repent. I need to come back to the Lord. I need his help and need his healing. And so these consequences are really grace that God gives us to lead us back onto the right path. So in David's case here, like I said, he's saying it was because of my sin. It's not always because of our sin, but David here is saying, it was my sin. That's why the Lord's hand was heavy on me. And he describes a bunch of temporal benefits when he confessed his sin. And so here's what he says about those that are forgiven. He says, verse five, he says, they confess their sins and God forgives them. Verses one and two, they are blessed by God. Verse eight, they're instructed and counseled and seen by God. Verse 11, they are marked with joy. Verse 7, they are preserved from trouble and surrounded with shouts of deliverance. Verse 10, they are surrounded by steadfast love of the Lord. Their consciences are renewed. Their hearts and their hope is strengthened. I don't know if you have this similar experience to me, but there's been times where it felt like the Lord's hand was really heavy, hard. He was distant. in a a time of trial, and then there's times where it's it's still a circumstance of trial, but the Lord's hand feels uplifting and it feels light. And my conscience and my hope and my faith feel renewed. And so that that can happen even when the circumstance remains to say, the Lord has revived me. He's preserving, he's surrounded me with his love. He's instructing me and guiding me through this trial. His hand feels light and uplifting. And so so that can happen. But here he says, blessed are the ones that confess their sins. And second, there's eternal consequences here. David says, God forgives sins. In verse six, he says, therefore, his conclusion, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of waters, they shall not reach him. We will either attempt to cover our sin or we will let God cover it for us, as in remove it. It's there either way. We either hide it or we let God take it and cover it and remove it from us. And so if we confess our sins, it says we're, we're surrounded by steadfast love and shouts of deliverance. If we don't confess our sins, we're surrounded by great waters that will swallow us up. And so he says, pray when the Lord can be found. I think he might be looking back to Noah here and saying the, the great waters that were surrounded and there's a time... For those to be saved, and Noah's family believed and was saved, and there were those that were swallowed up by the great waters. And the time for confession and repentance was gone. Judgment had come, justice had come from God. And so that, that time is coming. So David's saying, The Lord forgives sinners. So pursue him now when he can be found, when he's near, when he's eager to bless us and cover our sins and remove our iniquities. So David says, let the godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Question three here, they'll want to look at the end. So who are the godly? Um, and this, this is the point. This is everything in a sense here. The godly are unrighteous people. Don't miss this. To miss this is to miss the gospel, to miss the story of the Bible, to miss the history of redemption. Who are the Lord's righteous? Who are the Lord's blessed? Who are the Lord's godly? Who are the upright in heart here? It says, they're unrighteous people that have confessed their sins. The people that are marked with joy in verse 11 are sinners. And the Lord has forgiven them and redeemed them. The godly are not righteous in themselves, but they have a righteousness. They have the righteousness of Christ. The righteous are righteous by grace through faith in repenting and confessing their sins. And so the godly, the blessed, the forgiven, the righteous are, are sinners like you and me. And Paul actually quotes David here. When you go to Romans chapter 4 in the beginning, And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted to him as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of a blessing to the one in whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And he quotes David here. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And Paul writes, Is this blessing only for the circumcised? Are also for the uncircumcised. So who is the blessed here? It's not the law keepers. There are no law keepers. We all have sinned and have fallen short. It's the law breakers that the God of the universe blesses and forgives. And who is this blessing for? Is it only for the circumcised? No, also the uncircumcised. This blessing is for all. Therefore, confess your sins. God is a forgiver. Re- receive His forgiveness and rejoice. It's given by grace; it's not by our works. He says, "Those who work and try to earn it, those that try to be the lawgivers and stand on their own righteousness, they have no righteousness. They hide their sin and present to God a false righteousness. But those who can confess their sins." and say, I'm I'm not righteous, Lord. I can't earn it. I can't work for it, are forgiven. They are the blessed by God. That is the gospel, that Jesus Christ came and died to remove our sins and pay for our iniquities so that we might be blessed and brought near to God. Those are the people of God. That's who the church is. It's a bunch of sinners that have come and confessed their sins to God and have received his forgiveness and his blessing and his hope. And so that's what we're doing here. That's what it means to be a Christian, to be a sinner saved by grace. And so David exhorts us to here, confess your sins. If that's who God is, a God that forgives sins, forgives all our iniquities, that blesses us and clothes us in Christ's righteousness. And he says, confess, confess your sins and be healed and be forgiven.